Grant, O God, that we may learn what Jesus so revered in the prophets, that we may benefit from their example and learn to act and speak as they do. Amen. Depending on my mood, I'm either amused or irritated when a preacher glides past some extraordinary event recounted in one of the passages assigned for Sunday hearing. This Sunday's passage from the Hebrew Scriptures has one of these, a big one. And if I just passed over it, you would think it, I was either oblivious to its strangeness or you thought I lived in a world where people went up in chariots of fire, driven by horses of fire, as something that went on all the time. I hope you know me well enough by now to know that my world is just as ordinary as yours is. So, like you, I'm obliged to take notice when I read of a chariot with its fiery horses carrying Elijah off into heaven. So how do we deal with this chariot and its horses? We could simply say that it's in the Bible, and because the Bible is God's word, it must have happened to Elijah just as the story said it did. But I find that unsatisfactory, and I suspect you do too. For when it comes to the Holy Scriptures, I think it's safer to say that those scriptures contain the Word of God, but aren't necessarily the Word of God. Nor will it do for me, and probably it wouldn't do for you either, to be told that since it's no great miracle for planes to take off into the sky, it should be no great shakes for Elijah's chariot ride to have happened as it did. I just can't get around my natural reluctance to think chariots of fire take off with people in them and zoom off into heaven. Planes I can handle, chariots in the sky I can't. What does seem to me to be true about the account of Elijah's ascension is the fact that there was a time when Elijah was with Elisha the two of them talking by the Jordan River, conversing together. And there came a time when Elijah was no longer with Elisha, and Elisha had to go it alone. Maybe that's the way the writers of the story wanted to convey the suddenness and the finality of Elijah's disappearance by describing him as having taken off in a chariot and borne out of sight of Elisha and all of Elijah's fellow prophets. <clears throat> After all, there were numerous accounts in the ancient world of people going up, up, and away out of human sight by means of some miraculous conveyance. Now, when I think about it, for all the people who'd find Elijah's disappearance eyebrow-raising and frankly unbelievable, when it comes to Jesus' own ascension, which is obliquely mentioned in the Gospel for today, no similar questions are raised. It seems to be fine for Jesus to have ascended out of the sight of the disciples as they gazed intently after him. I think, though, 
that the reason Jesus' departure from the disciples was expressed as an ascension is for much the same reasons as Elijah's. Jesus ascended out of the view of his disciples and a cloud took him out of their sight. The symbol of the cloud as representing the realm of the divine and a world altogether different from our earthly one is peculiarly scriptural. We know that cloud from its appearance on Mount Sinai when Moses met God and received the commandments and from the occasion when a cloud surrounded Jesus and Moses and Elijah met with him on the mountaintop. And Jesus' disappearance into the cloud is Luke's way of expressing the finality of Jesus' separation from the disciples and what their life would be like from that point on. So the chariots of fire whisking Elijah away and the cloud taking Jesus from human sight both express the same idea, the final break between the lives Elijah and Jesus had here on earth with their disciples and their heavenly return. Well, I could leave all this here, but tucked away in the second book of the Chronicles, those two books of Chronicles are like cliff notes for the historical sections of the Hebrew Bible, is a particular peculiar nugget of historical fact? Well, you decide. It seems that during the reign of King Joram, he reigned shortly after the ministry of Elijah, a letter reached King Joram from Elijah. And that's all that's said. What was the letter like? Who delivered it? Did a chariot of fire bring it? Sometimes the Bible leaves too much out. And I think this is such a case. So here's a translation from a yet-to-be-discovered papyrus it's much fuller, I think you'll agree. King Joram's servant approaches him. My lord, he says. Yes, the king answers. You have a letter, my lord. From whom? From Elijah, my lord. Elijah? That hairy man? He's written to me from where? Heaven? I don't know, my lord. But here's the letter you judge. I have to say the letter's not complimentary. Give it to me. King Joram looks it over. It's a letter like any other letter, and sure enough, it came from Elijah. The king reads, you have not followed the footsteps of Jehoshaphat, your father. Mumble, mumble, mumble as he reads on. You have killed your brothers, men better than yourself. Mumble, 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 as he reads further. You will suffer from a chronic disease of the bowels. King Joram looked up. Sure sounds like Jer Elijah. Heaven hasn't improved him a bit. He hands the letter to his servant. Put the letter in the file and now bring me some wine. That letter has given me a headache. Was there an alternative account 
of Elijah's end? Did he actually go off to heaven never to be heard of again? Or was he in some undisclosed place paying attention to all of King Joram's doings inspired to write to the king about his views? Or is the whole business of fabrication to tarnish King Joram's reputation? I don't know, but common sense suggests the latter. Well, I have one more comment to make about Elijah and his burning chariot with its horses of fire, and then I'm done. This Sunday's text reminds me of an experience I had as a kid reading the story of Elijah in an old Bible that was hanging around the house. At the age of eight or nine, I took the story just as it was in the Bible. And there was an illustration of Elijah's ascent into heaven. It was an old woodcut that showed Elijah standing in the chariot, bearded and wild like Charlton Heston in a thunderstorm. Flames in the wheels, horses with flames licking their feet, their eyes bulging from excitement or exertion. The chariot was already high over the plains and mountains, and the sky was dark with clouds as if a thunderstorm were approaching. I read the account over and over again, mesmerized. It was as if some wider world had opened up for me, a world where chariots did climb up into the skies, a world of wonder and majesty, a world not governed by the rules we live by here, a world where God ruled. I think for me, that story and the illustration opened up for me a view of the presence of God in all of God's strange, wondrous powerfulness. It was for me an epiphany, which, truth to tell, all my adult knowledge and skepticism and rational views about the doubtfulness of chariots going up into the heavens have been quite incapable of opening my eyes to. At this stage of my life, all I can do is to look back wistfully to the time when the story of Elijah's ascension could almost in the same way take me up to heaven. Now I'm left very earthbound. I'd like now, in the time remaining, to sketch for you the way Elisha became a prophet. For I think it's the way anyone learns what their vocation is. The first part is the most mysterious. Elijah has been told by God to find a man who would succeed him as prophet. All Elijah knows is that the man's name is Elisha. Now, Elijah had many followers, but none of them seemed to have the spark he was looking for in a disciple. And at the same time, Elisha was home plowing his father's land with his 12 pair of oxen, a task he'd worked on dutifully for years. Elijah comes by. And who hadn't heard of Elijah, that great troubler of Israel, who throws his cloak over Elisha's, symbolizing the passage of prophetic power from Elijah to Elisha. Elisha, overjoyed, 
asks Elijah if he can first kiss his parents goodbye, breaking his ties with his family and his past. Then he joins Elijah and becomes his disciple. So Elijah found the pupil to whom he could impart everything he knew. And Elisha found his vocation and meaning for his life. That is the first step in becoming a prophet, the discovery. Then Elisha spends as much time as he can following Elijah here and there all over the hill country of Israel. Elisha has his work cut out for him because Elijah goes in whirlwind fashion from one religious center to another. It was priceless what Elisha learned from watching Elijah talk to the priests and prophets of places like Gilgal and Bethel and Jericho. And this listening and watching was the second stage to Elisha's becoming a prophet. For you learn to become a prophet by watching a prophet. The next stage is most important. The prophet in training needs to ask from the prophet, his teacher, what he needs. Because you don't learn to become a prophet by taking a course and doing well on a bunch of exams. You are given what you need to become a prophet. It is a gift. And Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. All the other prophets who followed Elijah had a portion of his spirit. Elisha wanted the whole extent of it. When you become a prophet, you don't ask for some little bit. You ask for all of it. You ask boldly. You want to be enveloped by the prophet's spirit. And this is the last of becoming a prophet, and without it, you never become one. You have to have your prophet teacher, your Elijah, leave you. For you will never become who you are meant to be while you are overwhelmed by the presence of your teacher. So Elijah leaves. If you see me leave, Elijah told Elisha, then a double amount of God's spirit will fall on you. If you don't see me go, if you can't live without me, then you'll only have one measure of the Spirit, like the other prophets. So then, here are the four stages of becoming a prophet. Finding the prophet who will teach you. Watching the prophet. Learning all you can. Asking for what you need. And thriving after your prophet mentor has departed. And I think for all of us, those are the steps we took to find our life and our vocation in life. Elisha became a prophet in succession after Elijah. The two men could not have been more different. Elijah was the great troubler of Israel, the one who called out Queen Jezebel and King Ahab, who shamed the priests of Baal, who hid in the cave on Mount Horeb and heard the still, small voice of God. Elisha was more pastoral. 
He was a social man, worked with other people. Wasn't a solitary type like Elijah, his master. Elisha made poisonous water safe for all to drink, located wells and pools for the soldiers fighting the wars with Moab, helped an old woman pay her debts by increasing the oil she kept in her oil jar. He cured Naaman of his leprosy, but his spirit could sometimes get the better of him. When a bunch of little boys chased after him, laughing at his baldness and calling him Old Baldy, a couple of bears rushed out of the forest and made quick work of all of them. Now, while many of us aren't given the opportunity to speak truth to power as Elijah did, or to perform miracles of caring for those in need as Elisha did, the prophets can still show us how to speak from our hearts what troubles us and gives us no rest and we, until we can place it in God's hands for God's care and God's healing. And so with this thought, I end my sermon with a prayer. Let us pray. O God of all power and majesty, in whose hands lie the fate of every nation, be with this country at a time when distrust and anger threaten to rule the way we live and the way we are governed. Send your blessed spirit of truth and goodness to those in our government who have the power to do good or ill, and lead them from all craven self-interest timidity and narrow-mindedness to see the truth that's reflective of you. Be with those in our country who have no one to help them, the victims of gun violence and the rapaciousness of greedy people, to find their place of peace and security of life. Be with those who are become pregnant, that they may have all the resources they need to live their lives safely and without fear and in true hopefulness. And lead our people out of a morass of bitterness, recrimination, and self-centeredness, that we may once again see the needs of our neighbors, the hopes that each one of us cherishes in our hearts, and take our tattered nation, and with your spirit heal the wounds we've inflicted on each other, all our hurtful actions, our cruel words, our shameful inaction, and make us what you would have us to be, one people, one nation, one temple filled with your presence. In Jesus' name, we make this prayer. Amen.